Well, good day and welcome to the second half of the podcast. I'm going to pose a few theological questions or arguments, perhaps, that uh, supposedly back up the case for annihilationism. And I'd like you to do something with this. After I give you each argument, I'd like for you to pause the recording if you can and think about what your response might be. Perhaps you could think about, is there a scripture you'd go to or maybe even a couple of scriptures? Is there a theological concept that you'd want to explain? Uh, is there perhaps an understanding of God or about the way he works that you think the argument misunderstands? Okay, so here's the first one. God cannot be both all-loving and all-powerful if people remain in hell forever. I'll say that again. God cannot be both all-loving and all-powerful if people remain in hell forever. This is really an argument that gets to the question of how powerful is God and also how just is God. So let's say, for example, that God desires that none should perish. That's clear from a number of scriptures. So we could say, yes, he's all loving. He wants everyone to be where he is. Now, if he's all powerful, completely sovereign, then surely he can enact everything that he desires. Surely he should save everybody that he desires not to perish. So therefore, if God is all loving, desiring that none should perish, and all powerful, that is able to enact his desires, then in the end, all must be saved. Uh, God has to save everyone out of hell, as the universalists claim, or at least end their punishment because he desires that none should perish. So this is an argument, once again, about whether God is truly loving, truly powerful, and if he's both and chooses not to end people's punishment in hell or not to save everyone out of hell, then is he truly just? There's the argument. Pause the recording here if you'd like to have a think. Okay, hopefully you've had a chance to consider that one. It's a curly question. Uh, where you might have landed on it pretty quickly is on the idea that God honors free will. So, yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he desires that none should perish, but he's chosen to, so the argument goes, voluntarily restrict his sovereignty so that people can make a genuine choice. So he gives people the complete independent ability to choose heaven or hell, to choose Jesus or uh, their own way. However, even though it seems like this helps solve the problem of injustice, it still runs into the same problem as Calvinistic views of God's sovereignty. So in the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty, God predestined people for salvation and he sort of passed over or didn't predestine people uh, who, who end up going to hell. And the idea there is, how is it that God could create people having predestined some to salvation and passed over some that he, he knew would go to hell? How can it be said that that God is truly loving? Uh, well, the same problem for free will, because... If you affirm that God knew those who would eventually choose him, even by their own independent free will, then you've got the same question. Why did God create people whom he knew 
would not end up trusting them, trusting in him, that he knew would end up in hell. Uh, yes, he gave them the choice, but he created them knowing that they wouldn't make the right choice. And so it runs aground of the same problem that Calvinism does. And the only alternative at that point is to embrace what's called open theism, a view that God doesn't know the future. And that's extremely problematic. Also, Scripture is actually really clear that we can't choose to follow Jesus except by God's enabling. John 8, 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave doesn't have choice. They simply do what their master commands. That's what Jesus is getting at. John 6, 65, Jesus went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. You can also look up Romans 8, 7 to 8, which talks about the fact that the, uh, the one who's in the flesh cannot choose God. So we are responsible for our sins, but we are not autonomous. We are dead in sin until God makes us alive by his regenerating, enabling grace, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we voluntarily choose Jesus. That only happens if God wakes us up, as it were. Also, God has allowed sin and evil to come into the world for his good purposes. He's not the one who tempts people. We learn that from James 1.13. He's not the cause of evil. But scripture is clear that he is also completely sovereign over evil. There's a theologian named Henri Blocher who sort of puts it this way. He says there are three statements. Evil is always evil and never good. So it's not as though God does evil. Secondly, God is totally good and never evil. Thirdly, God is totally sovereign, even over evil. So in summary, it doesn't help to appeal to ideas like, well, God honors free will or God's limited his sovereignty to allow genuine choice and so on. Those ideas don't actually give voice to Scripture's perspective of God's complete omnipotence, his complete power. A better view is to say that actually God is not bound to save anyone. Now, all have voluntarily chosen to sin against him because we're slaves to sin. And so his judgment on everyone is just. Everyone going to hell would actually be pure justice. The fact that he saves anyone, however, is pure love and pure grace. It's actually gratuitous love. It's love that isn't necessary but that God chooses to pour out. And so it's not for us to demand that just because God is love, all undeserving sinners must be saved. Who are we to tell God what to do or what it means for him to be love? He's not a machine or a formula or something for us to constrain. Don't forget the, the words of Romans 9, verse 18 to 20. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? There's a fundamental misunderstanding here in the annihilationist argument about what it means that God is love. We can actually fully affirm that God is all loving and all powerful while sending people to the just results of their sin, that is, hell. 
Beware as well of defining God's love in human-centered terms. See, God's love is first and fundamentally directed actually towards himself. He's a triune God. And so the love of the Father to the Son, to the Spirit, to the Father, and so on. It's a love for his own glory, uh, not just the love of creator to creature, but creator within himself. That, that is part of him being a trinity. His love for his glory is his first love, if you want. And it's the fact that he loves his glory that prompts him to pour out love gratuitously on his creation. He sends rain on both the wicked and the righteous. There's common grace, common good given to everyone at all times. And in the new creation to come, those who have been elected and regenerated and justified and sanctified and now glorified with Christ will experience the blessing of his grace forever in a particularly new way. The fact that God does that is because he loves his glory. He wants people to share in it. He wants people to see him as he is treasure him as he is and find their deepest joy and happiness in him, which is where we're designed to find it. Therefore, the statement that God is all loving, or as 1 John 1, uh, chapter 4 puts it, God is love, does not contradict the idea that God is all powerful or that God is holy or that God is just. These are compatible because God is love actually first and foremost involves his love for his own glory. A lot more that we could say on that. Uh, but uh, I think those are some key theological uh, goalposts to have when we consider that argument from annihilationism. Here's a second one. It is unjust to punish finite sin for an infinite eternity. So the case here is that people do sin against God and perhaps do deserve some kind of punishment in the next life, but even the worst of sinners only sin for 80 or 90 years. And even the most extensive sin only affects people for a set amount of time, even if it's intergenerational. It might last for some hundreds of years, but it has an end point. It would be totally unjust, goes the argument, to punish finite sin for an infinite eternity. Pause the recording if you like and have a think about that question. Okay, the first thing to raise with this one is that it's a rationalistic argument. So we're dealing with things like infinity and eternity and an infinite God and people who live for an infinity. Uh, we're wading into waters that are in fact much too deep for us. The, the conversation around the infinite and the finite, we simply just can't fully understand it. It's like we're a paper cup trying to capture a waterfall. We'll capture something, we'll fill the cup perhaps, but we won't capture all the water. And so we've got to, at first, sort of be sceptical of our own logic, perhaps, that we might bring to an argument like this. Uh, another point of view on this is that maybe people will keep being punished eternally because they will keep sinning eternally. That is, people will keep sinning in hell and so storing up more and more judgment for themselves. Uh, this is the argument made by C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and, and some others. Um, D.A. Carson, um, if you've heard me talk about him before, he's excellent. He's probably the best theologian of our age. Uh, he says in his book, The Gagging of God, 
that uh, Revelation 22 verses 10 to 11 perhaps has a picture of people continuing to sin in hell. So the picture here is that um, he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So he's making a point there that the evildoer, who's evil now, may well keep doing evil in hell. And the filthy will still be be filthy. That's hard to say that word, to be filthy in hell. Uh, Just as the righteous will keep doing right in the new creation and the holy will still be holy in the new creation. One problem with that argument, though, is that um, what's in view here in Revelation 22 is not hell and the new creation. It's actually talking about uh, a time before Jesus returns. So it's saying, you know, let the evildoer Keep doing evil till Jesus returns, because then he's going to be judged. Let him still be filthy until Jesus returns. He's, he's going to be judged. But let the righteous one still do right, because that'll show that his faith is genuine when Jesus returns. Um, Carson actually concedes that that may well be the case. And he, he says this isn't a super strong argument. Uh, he, he, sort of, he sort of goes, I think this is the closest I can get biblically to showing this point. And that it's probable that people will keep sinning in hell, even if I can't show it. Now, <laughs> maybe that's an interesting philosophical argument, but I don't think it's very convincing on a biblical point of view. Um, against that as well is that uh, the basis of our judgment biblically is never what someone will do in hell. Uh, Jesus never points to that. Paul never points to that. The New Testament never points to that. They never say people will keep sinning in hell and that's why they'll be judged eternally. It's always actually what we did in the body. It's how we stewarded our time here on earth. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Our sin now is what leads to death. And so that leads such theological luminaries as Augustine and Calvin, sort of the top and tail of reformed thinking, to say that actually sin won't continue in hell. For God to be supreme, he must stop all rebellion. People will not keep rebelling against him in hell. People might still have the will to sin because they're not going to change. They're not going to be, you know, gloriously transformed and given this, this, or sort of their new nature on display like we'll have. Uh, They may well have the will to sin, but they'll be stripped of the power to sin. Uh, Stands to reason then that the argument that perhaps people will keep Sinning eternally, therefore they should be punished eternally, doesn't quite work. So what do we do with this? If it's not that, you know, we have a rationalistic argument against this or that people will keep sinning eternally, where do we turn? Well, (laughs) the basis of the punishment of sin is not about how long it's for. It's against whom the sin is committed. We have sinned against a holy, eternal infinite God. It's an infinite price tag because God is infinitely holy, not because we sin infinitely. In other words, it's the quality of sin that merits eternal punishment, not the duration of sin. This is actually also why Jesus could suffer finitely on the cross for infinite sin. He didn't have to suffer for an eternity. He suffered once for all, 1 Peter 3.18 says, once for all in the body, uh, putting sin to death 
and he, he did it, the unrighteous for the righteous to, sorry, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Uh, his work was done because he is the infinite God who could suffer for infinite sin, do you see? Another way of putting this, perhaps, as an illustration is, if you went and stole from a friend, then your friend might get mad at you, your friend might stop trusting you, your friend might even demand back what you stole. Uh, chances are they're, they're not going to do something really horrible to you. Um, if you steal from a policeman, let's say you steal their gun, for example, uh, you're going to be in a world of trouble. Uh, you're going to go to jail, you're probably going to have charges pressed against you. What if you were to steal against a leadership figure, like the Queen, or the King, or the Prime Minister? Well, now you'll probably not only go to jail, you'll have the newspapers writing about you. And what if you were to steal from someone who's very rich and powerful? Well, now it's not only newspapers and not only... Um, jail, but you might have litigation against you. Your life is totally over. So who we sin against determines the severity of the sin and stands to reason sinning even finitely against an infinite holy God will merit infinite punishment in hell. One more theological argument to think through. God is completely loving. Right? He desires that none should perish. He doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked, says Ezekiel 33.11. He's completely loving. Therefore, there's no way that he would sadistically punish people in hell forever. That's just not his character. God is love. How could he punish people in hell forever? Pause the recording if you like. Have a think. All right, now we already touched on this in the first question. How do we define love? <laughs> Remember, we don't want to just be human-centric. We want to have a, a God-centric or a theocentric view of love. His love for his own glory, first of all. And God is glorified in the judgment poured out in hell because it's a right judgment. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval time, he saw that retributive justice, pouring out judgment, actually restores the moral order of the universe. And so as such, it brings praise to God as well as re-establishing truth and righteousness in his creation. And so to call sadism uh, blasphemous actually involves calling a good thing evil. It involves taking a righteous act of divine judgment that glorifies God and brings harmony to his creation and saying that's bad. That itself is actually blasphemous. There's also another interesting observation here. Will God be good to people in hell? We might want to say no, and probably I'm inclined to say no, but there's a quote here from John Frame, a Presbyterian theologian, very good thinker, who I think challenges me and, and some of my views there. He says that there may be some ways, however, in which God is good even to the lost. Perhaps he is as good to them as he possibly can be, given their hatred of him and the demands of his righteous justice. And if there are degrees of punishment in hell, as suggested by Luke 12, 47 to 48, then even in hell, God may exercise his benevolence by mitigating some punishments. That is, not always punishing to the fullest extent. It may also be worth considering that in their very punishment in hell, God is giving a privilege to the lost. The privilege of displaying his justice and his victory in the spiritual war. Compare Romans 9.17. Now those who find no benevolence in this privilege might be advised to consider whether their standards of goodness are sufficiently 
theocentric, that is, is their view of goodness and love man-centered or God-centered? Uh, that's from his book, The Doctrine of God, on page 413. Really interesting to think through that God may still continue to be in some way good to the people who are in hell. All right, so there's our theological questions, uh, hopefully answered around annihilationism. I do want to spend five or ten minutes also talking about universalism. So this is the view that punishment in hell will not be eternal, but the reason for that is not because people will be destroyed. It's because people will eventually repent of their sin in hell. They will see the beauty and goodness of Jesus. They'll see how wrong they were. They will turn and be saved, and they will be ransomed from hell, redeemed from hell, and brought into the new creation with God and his people. Now, there are a couple of arguments that may support this idea. One, again, is a word argument, like with annihilationism. Here, there's a Greek word, kolossus, K-O-L-A-S-I-S. And the argument here is that kolossus, when it's used, refers to a rehabilitative or a corrective punishment, not a retributive punishment. So if you remember from Sunday, we talked about the purpose of prisons, and this is on rehabilitation rather than just leaving people to rot or making hell a deterrent or something like that. Now, some evidence for this comes from the 300s BC, when Greek is becoming sort of the, the main language of the empire. And we have here Aristotle in his uh, treatise on rhetoric, where he talks about the difference between two Greek words, timoria and colossus. And so here's what he says. He says, there is a difference between revenge, timoria, and punishment, colossus. The latter, that is colossus, is inflicted in the interest of the sufferer. So it's for the good of the person suffering. It's corrective. The former, timora, is in the interest of him who inflicts it. So there's two different words here that the biblical writers could select to talk about the punishment of hell. They could say it's timoria, uh, which means revenge or, or you know, retribution. Uh, the kind of idea of, of not rehabilitative, it's just pure punishment. Or they could use this word, colossus, which in the 300s BC at least, meant more rehabilitative or corrective. To Peter. Chapter 2, verse 9, that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment, colossus, until the day of judgment. And then you've got Matthew 25, 46, the one we read earlier, that these will go away into eternal colossus, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The argument here is that there is correction, there is rehabilitation in view. So the unrighteous will be kept under correction or under rehabilitation until the day of their judgment, perhaps the day of their evaluation, where they will be found righteous finally by their repentance. Or in Matthew 25, 46, um, their eternal punishment is not actually a punishment. It's a, it's a correction. It's a rehabilitation that brings about eternal life. That's the argument. Now, what makes this difficult is that Colossus, as a word, is only used four times in the New Testament. However, it's clear that in each case, a more plain reading of the verses 
uh, is talking about a, a more retributive judgment, not rehabilitation. So 2 Peter 2.9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under Colossus, Colossus sorry, under punishment until the day of judgment, is clearly talking about the day when Jesus brings judgment and consigns people to hell. It's talking about people in Sheol or Hades, in the intermediate state, where they are under punishment. And we know that people cannot be reformed during the intermediate state. Consider the rich man in Luke 16 who fails to repent. Uh, he continues crying out for Lazarus to give him water. He keeps begging with uh, God to change the situation uh, rather than actually repenting for his sin. And so clearly in view here is, is not reformation or rehabilitation. It's, it's clearly just punishment. Uh, so too in Matthew 25, 46, uh, the eternal punishment, Ionios Colossus, uh, is clearly, again, referring to an eternity of punishment. It would be very strange to call this an eternity of rehabilitation when there's a, a moment when people under universalism would be rehabilitated and then go to the new creation. So the punishment itself is eternal. Also, if we look in the BDAG, um, there's actually no mention at all of uh, Colossus meaning rehabilitation. Now, why is that when clearly it meant that to Aristotle 300 years before uh, the scriptures were written? Well, it would seem that the word has in fact changed its meaning over that time. And this is what seems to be the best explanation from a scholarly point of view. So it's, it's not rehabilitation in the New Testament because by then that meaning had dropped out of the word. So it just kind of kept the general meaning of punishment, but didn't keep the, the meaning of correctiveness. Now, this happens in English too. So, for example, prior to the 14th century, the word meat, that is M-E-A-T, referred to just about any solid food, including animal feed, grains. So you'd say, give the cow some meat. Bit weird, but you're feeding the cow grain. Uh, and then over time, the, the meaning narrowed down to just mean cuts from an animal. So it lost the sense of all food, but it kept the sense of food from an animal. Here, Colossus lost the rehabilitation meaning from the 300 BCs, but kept the punishment meaning in Jesus' time. So, again, not a very good argument from the word Colossus. There is another argument that perhaps you've been more troubled by, however, if you've ever uh, encountered it, which is that um, there are many verses which, on a plain, plain reading, seem to apparently teach universalism. Now, I've given on the sheet a, a huge list of them. You can see 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 28, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, Philippians 2, 10 to 11, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and the list goes on. Uh, some people have compiled lists that they think are 50 or 60 verses long that support universalism. Here's one of them, Ephesians 1, 10. God's plan is to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things, what's his plan? It's to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now in a plain reading, it sounds like all things will be brought together, like in, in one big community, under Christ. And the idea there is, well, even people from hell will be saved and brought together in this community. They may suffer for a time, but they'll be rehabilitated. After all, it says all things. 
Now, two arguments to make here. Firstly, we need to talk about what all things mean. Uh, in Greek, the word all, that is the word penta, uh, usually isn't combined with a noun. So you won't, if, if you go through uh, on Blue Letter Bible and you take a look there, you won't see that there's a word all, penta, uh, and then a word for things. You'll just see all. So to bring all in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And uh, this is just the way Greek works. Um, you know, we sometimes do this for English. Uh, we might bring chocolate cookies into work one day and we'll say, oh, they're for everyone. Um, but, you know, who's, who's the everyone here? Is it for everyone in this building and in the next building over? Well, no. Is it for Brett, who's allergic to chocolate? Again, no. But we say everyone. They're for everyone. Um, same deal in Greek. Uh, they say, you know, they're for all. Penta. Then you need to work out who the all is. You have to fill in the gap as the reader. And so two options here for how we might interpret all things in a way that plainly explains what's being said in the verse. So first option is that it's referring to all of creation, to bring all creation in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Uh, however, with some limitation there that it's picturing believers only. Now this would limit the reference of all so that unbelievers aren't being brought together or, or united in Christ is another way of uh, translating that word there. Uh, and certainly that makes sense of what's been said so far in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 1 has talked about predestination and the gift of grace given through belief and people being sealed with the Holy Spirit. These aren't things that describe unbelievers. They only describe believers. And so it would be quite natural for someone to arrive at verse 10 reading through Ephesians 1 and go, oh, well, of course, the all things is all of creation, including only believers, not unbelievers. So that's the first option. I'm actually more convinced by this second option. It's referring to all of creation, things on heaven and things on earth, including both believers and unbelievers. You might say, isn't that what universalists say? Well, yes. <laughs> However, the context clearly talks about being um, brought together not in terms of one big heavenly community, but in terms of all things sort of meeting their end in God's will. Verse 9 talks about a mystery or a purpose, uh, God's will being sort of played out into creation, and this is what it is. It's that all things will be united under God's will under Christ. So the benefits of being united under Christ in, in God's will, being summed up under Christ, actually apply to believers only. Verse 12 to 13 and verse 19 talk about that. Those who don't believe, however, will be united under God's will or summed up under God's will in a different way. By the will of God, they will demonstrate the justice and truth of his judgments forever in hell. Now that's a sobering reality, but one about which the Bible is thoroughly clear. Just to try and put that in, in um, briefer terms, the all things here, I think, does refer to believers and unbelievers and all creation. However, for all things to be united under God's will in Christ means a different thing for believers than it means for unbelievers. There are benefits for believers in being united under Christ, and there are curses or punishments for unbelievers in being united under Christ.
that Ephesians is filled with warnings is evidence of that further. So Ephesians 5 verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So the wrath of God is still part of God's will for his creation. It will exist eternally. It will be poured out on unbelievers in hell. Now I'll give you another couple of quick examples of um, verses that seem to teach universalism but actually don't. Uh, one here is in Colossians 1, 19 to 20. Uh, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself, and here's the phrase again, all things. So reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, that all things, punter, we've got to ask, well, what's the things? Is it believers and unbelievers, or is it just believers, or is it something else? It could mean both believers and unbelievers. It would seem strange to talk about unbelievers being reconciled to God um, through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. We, we know that that's not what Christ's blood has, has come to do. Um, it's to reconcile those who move from unbelief to belief while here on earth. So I think that probably what's in view here is the, the all things is actually all believers. And that's consistent with uh, the use of this panta and then needing to fill in the gap. So we know that the benefits of being made you know, at peace with God through Christ's blood only apply to believers from later in Colossians. So Colossians 3 verse 6 says, um, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Again, there's wrath that's going to be poured out on unbelievers. But um, believers, beginning of Colossians 3, are those who have been raised with Christ. Furthermore, uh, Paul viewed his earthly mission as helping people be included in Christ now so that they'd mature in him now. Colossians 1, verse 27 to 28 to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, says Paul, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, who's the everyone? Clearly not everyone in the whole world. The everyone here is obviously talking only about believers, since only believers become mature in Christ. Only believers suffer with Christ, that they would be glorified with Christ. And only believers are those who will be reconciled to God together with all creation by making peace through the blood of Christ. So I think what's being viewed here in Colossians 1, 19-20 is that believers together with all of creation, but not unbelievers, will be reconciled to God on the day of Christ Jesus. So it's not picturing all people. Picturing all believers together with all created things. Finally, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is a popular one for universalists as well. Uh, it says, when he, God, has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, is God all in all if he doesn't rule over all his creation? the annihilationist or the universalist, this only becomes true when hell itself is emptied. Otherwise, it can't be said that God is ruling over his creation. But 
I think as we've clearly seen now, that isn't a requirement because punishment in hell is actually part of God's righteous will. He is all in all, not to the exclusion of his justice, but to its full inclusion. God is all in all, both in the loving, gratuitous display of his grace in the new creation and his love for his glory poured out in justice and wrath in the torments of hell. And although that's a very difficult idea to comprehend now, I think scripture is clear that we'll come to see it in the new creation. One final thing that you might hear as an argument for universalism is that it was the belief of the early church fathers. And sometimes people, very few of them, but sometimes people talk about how uh, this has been ignored for centuries, but we're now just recovering the truth that the early church believed in universalism. There is a partial truth to this, but it's absolutely not the full story. Um, on your sheets, I've actually given a bit of a, a timeline here that you can see begins with um, Ignatius, uh, who was around during the 100s, and, uh, and goes on from there and then splits off into the Western and Eastern Church. Now, I just want to quickly kind of go through and show you who amongst these early church fathers actually did hold to universalism. So um, Ignatius didn't. He's one of the earliest writers, and he mentioned everlasting punishment. Uh, among the apologists, Justin Martyr certainly didn't. Uh, he held to a literal hell fire, so it was flames in hell, and he said that it was eternal, not temporary. Uh, he also pointed out that the wicked actually would have a resurrection body, they would feel pain in hell, and that this would all be just because people have freely chosen to sin. Uh, he actually said that uh, if hell is not eternal, then um, morality is pointless because there'd be no punishment for um, or, or reward, actually, as well in terms of the new creation. Uh, in terms of early Western thinkers, um, Irenaeus, he said that the eternity of hell was actually fundamental to Christian doctrine. Uh, although hell was originally designed for Satan, that is, it was prepared for the devil and his angels, uh, God's justice is entirely retributive, and those who have become sort of the children of Satan by sinning will go to share his eternal punishment. Now, Irenaeus was writing against uh, sort of some of the proto-Gnostics. Remember the Gnostics who, who uh, disagreed that the body was innately good? Um, they thought it would be impossible for God to pour both blessing and judgment out on humanity at the same time. And Irenaeus was saying, well, actually, no, God will do that. He'll pour blessing out in the, the new heavens and the new earth and judgment out in hell. Uh, Tertullian, he said that annihilationism uh, doesn't really hold water because a destruction can't mean the cessation of existence. That's because of what the Bible says elsewhere, and that's some of the argument we've covered, but also because it would be wasteful to raise a body only to destroy it. That's quite a good argument. Um, he also believed in penal justice, that is, retributive justice. Now, on the other hand, the Eastern Church began uh, thinking some different things about the eternity or lack thereof of punishment in hell. So the first guy to really put some legs on that was a guy, Origen. Uh, he had a theory called apocatastasis. Big word, apocatastasis. Uh, his view was that everything may someday be restored to God, even perhaps the devil. Uh, this is kind of the, the earliest form of universalism that really has legs. Uh, he said that the mental anguish in hell would probably lead people to realize how wrong they were it would be torment followed by an end, either annihilationism or 
coming into the new creation. Uh, he was writing against a guy called Celsus, and so one of his big works was called Contra Celsus, um, and, uh, and he was talking a lot about 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 to 15, um, where people might be saved through fire. Um, this is where his school for souls idea came, and that, that the fire represented purification, not judgment or punishment. And he also argued from the character of God that if God is good, then by necessity, he'll save everyone. Uh, he argued as well from the text that we've seen before, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God will be all in all. So that was kind of his approach to scripture. He read everything through that lens. Well, God will be all in all. And so that has to mean that hell will be emptied. Um, so that there's, there's sort of all these arguments there, and we've touched on all of those and shown how they don't really hold water. Uh, but he was one of the, the first guys to really argue this stuff out. And uh, he had a pretty wide influence, particularly in the early Eastern Church. Gregory of Nyssa sort of took these things and really ran with them. And so often if you hear people say, oh, the early church fathers believed in um, universalism, really what they're saying is the early Eastern Orthodox Church believed in universalism. But that's not quite so true in the Western Church from which um, we sort of draw most of our history, actually. Uh, Augustine, for example, um, certainly said that, that punishment is retributive in hell. Uh, he also said that people will not sin further there. Um, so he was the one who, who sort of first said that people will have no power to sin versus the righteous in heaven who will actually have no will to sin. Very fascinating idea that um, there's a big difference there, that those in hell will have the will to sin but not its power but we in the new creation just won't want to sin. Uh, perhaps that's as an outcome of seeing who God truly is. He also said that um, uh, in terms of the fire, it was most likely metaphorical and maybe it was influenced a little bit by origin there. Um, but uh, again, uh, it was sort of a, a, uh, a metaphor for the punishment that people would face. It's not a purifying thing. Sort of drawing on uh, Matthew 10, 28, he said that the body and soul would be in pain in hell. That's the, the metaphor of destruction. Uh, he said that perhaps the fire might be um, representing that pain. But then there's also the worm that never dies out. And that probably represents, you know, sort of like this anguish in someone's soul, the gnawing remorse. Uh, he drew from uh, Proverbs 25, 20 sort of to, to justify that picture. Most importantly, he said that hell is certainly eternal. In fact, he says that universalism isn't a merciful option because if it truly was, then shouldn't wicked angels also be saved? Shouldn't the devil be saved? But universalists don't really make that argument. Um, he also said uh, as a caution that we as temporal creatures can't really see the enormity of sin in this life. And so we've got to be very careful about making uh, arguments like, well, Finite sin shouldn't have an infinite price tag. Sort of that idea of the paper cup under the waterfall. All of that just to say that the verdict of history is um, universalism, universalism is a very minor footnote, really, in, uh, in the overall Christian thinking on this topic. It was believed by some of the early Eastern Church Fathers, but by no means in the apostolic era, or uh, those that followed in the Western Church. And that the Reformers in the 15th, 16th century onwards almost categorically denied it, um, I think certainly goes to show that this has never been the orthodoxy of the Church. If 
probably just a, a quote to finish on. This is from J.I. Packer. He writes in a, a paper called The Problem of Eternal Punishment. He says this, Does it matter whether an evangelical is a conditionalist or not? A conditionalist is an annihilationist. He says, I think it does. For a conditionalist's idea of God will miss out on the glory of divine justice. And his idea of worship will miss out on praise for God's judgments. And his idea of heaven will miss out on the thought that praise for God's judgment goes on. And his idea of man will miss out on the awesome dignity of our having been made to last for eternity. And in his preaching of the gospel, he will miss out on telling the unconverted that their prospects without Christ, they're as bad as they possibly could be. For on the conditionalist view, they aren't. These surely are sad losses. Conditionalism, logically thought through, cannot but impoverish a Christian man and limit his usefulness to the Lord. To that I say a hearty amen and uh, encourage you in continuing to think these things through. Like I said, we don't go to hell for asking questions about hell, but we shouldn't be led by emotions or overly sentimental views of God or human-centered views of his love. We need to carefully think through the way that Scripture pictures God and Scripture pictures hell and Scripture depicts justice. Only when we do those things can we actually come to a biblical view on hell and eternal punishment. Well, there's a marathon of thoughts for you guys. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday where we're actually going to wrap up our year in Equip by looking at the new heavens and the new earth. So finishing on a positive note, look forward to seeing you there.